Chapter Fifteen of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Sixteen. England under Henry the Third, called of Winchester. If any of the English barons remembered the murdered Arthur's sister, Eleanor, the fair maid of Brittany, shut up in her convent at Bristol, none among them spoke of her now, or maintained her right to the crown. The dead usurper's eldest boy, Henry by name, was taken by the Earl of Pembroke the Marshal of England, to the city of Gloucester, and there crowned in great haste when he was only ten years old. As the crown itself had been lost with the king's treasure in the raging water, and as there was no time to make another, they put a circle of plain gold upon his head instead. We have been the enemies of this child's father, said Lord Pembroke, a good and true gentleman, to the few lords who were present, and he merited our ill-will. But the child himself is innocent, and his youth demands our friendship and protection. Those lords felt tenderly towards the little boy, remembering their own young children, and they bowed their heads and said, Long live King Henry the Third. Next, a great council met at Bristol, revised Magna Charta, and made Lord Pembroke regent or protector of England, as the king was too young to reign alone. The next thing to be done was to get rid of Prince Louis of France, and to win over those English barons who were still ranged under his banner. He was strong in many parts of England, and in London itself, and he held, among other places, a certain castle called the Castle of Mount Sorrel, in Leicestershire. To this fortress, after some skirmishing and truce-making, Lord Pembroke laid siege. Louis dispatched an army of six hundred knights and twenty thousand soldiers to relieve it. Lord Pembroke, who was not strong enough for such a force, retired with all his men. The army of the French prince, which had marched there with fire and plunder, marched away with fire and plunder, and came, in a boastful swaggering manner, to Lincoln. The town submitted, but the castle in the town, held by a brave widow lady, named Nicola de Camville, whose property it was, made such a sturdy resistance that the French Count, in command of the army of the French Prince, found it necessary to besiege this castle. While he was thus engaged, word was brought to him that Lord Pembroke, with four hundred knights, two hundred and fifty men, with cross bows, and a stout force, both of horse and foot, was marching towards him. "'What care I?' said the French Count." 
the Englishman is not so mad as to attack me and my great army in a walled town. But the Englishman did it for all that, and did it not so madly but so wisely, that he decoyed the great army into the narrow, ill-paved lanes and byways of Lincoln, where its horse-soldiers could not ride in any strong body, and there he made such havoc with them, that the whole force surrendered themselves prisoners, except the Count, who said that he would never yield to any English traitor alive, and accordingly got killed. The end of this victory, which the English called for a joke, the fair of Lincoln, was the usual one in those times, the common men were slain without any mercy, and the knights and gentlemen paid ransom and went home. The wife of Louis, the fair Blanche of Castile, dutifully equipped a fleet of eighty good ships, and sent it over from France to her husband's aid. An English fleet of forty ships, some good and some bad, gallantly met them near the mouth of the Thames, and took or sunk sixty-five in one fight. This great loss put an end to the French prince's hopes. A treaty was made at Lambeth, in virtue of which the English barons, who had remained attached to his cause, returned to their allegiance, and it was engaged on both sides that the prince and all his troops should retire peacefully to France. It was time to go, for war had made him so poor that he was obliged to borrow money from the citizens of London to pay his expenses home. Lord Pembroke afterwards applied himself to governing the country justly, and to healing the quarrels and disturbances that had arisen among men in the days of the bad King John. He caused Magna Charta to be still more improved, and so amended the forest laws that a peasant was no longer put to death for killing a stag in a royal forest, but was only imprisoned. It would have been well for England if it could have had so good a protector many years longer, but there was not to be. Within three years after the young king's coronation, Lord Pembroke died, and you may see his tomb at this day in the old temple church in London. The protectorship was now divided. Peter de Roches, whom King John had made Bishop of Winchester, was entrusted with the care of the person of the young sovereign, and the exercise of the royal authority was confided to Earl Hubert de Burr. These two personages had from the first no liking for each other, and soon became enemies. When the young king was declared of age, Peter de Roches, finding that Hubert increased in power and favour, retired discontentedly and went abroad. For nearly ten years afterwards, Hubert had full sway alone. But ten years is a long time to hold the favour of a king. This king, too, as he grew up, showed a strong resemblance to his father, in feebleness, 
inconsistency, and irresolution. The best that can be said of him is that he was not cruel. De Roche's coming home again, after ten years, and being a novelty, the king began to favour him and to look coldly on Hubert. Wanting money besides, and having made Hubert rich, he began to dislike Hubert. At last he was made to believe, or pretended to believe, that Hubert had misappropriated some of the royal treasure, and ordered him to furnish an account of all he had done in his administration. Besides which, the foolish charge was brought against Hubert, that he had made himself the king's favourite by magic. Hubert very well knowing that he could never defend himself against such nonsense, and that his old enemy must be determined on his ruin, instead of answering the charges fled to Merton Abbey. Then the king, in a violent passion, sent for the mayor of London, and said to the mayor, Take twenty thousand citizens, and drag me Hubert de Burr out of that abbey, and bring him here. The mayor posted off to do it, but the archbishop of Dublin, who was a friend of Hubert's, warning the king that an abbey was a sacred place, and that if he committed any violence there, he must answer for it to the church. The king changed his mind and called the mayor back, and declared that Hubert should have four months to prepare his defence, and should be safe and free during that time. Hubert, who relied upon the king's word, though I think he was old enough to have known better, came out of Merton Abbey upon these conditions, and journeyed away to see his wife a Scottish princess, who was then at St. Edmundsbury. Almost as soon as he had departed from the sanctuary, his enemies persuaded the weak king to send out one Sir Godfrey de Crancombe, who commanded three hundred vagabonds called the Black Band, with orders to seize him. They came up with him at a little town in Essex, called Brentwood, when he was in bed. He leaped out of bed, got out of the house, fled to the church, ran up to the altar, and laid his hand upon the cross. Sir Godfrey and the black band, caring neither for church, altar, nor cross, dragged him forth to the church door, with their drawn swords flashing round his head, and sent for a smith to rivet a set of chains upon him. When the smith, I wish I knew his name, was brought, all dark and swarthy with the smoke of his forge, and panting with the speed he had made, and the black band, falling aside to show him the prisoner, cried with a loud uproar, Make the fetters heavy, make them strong. The smith dropped upon his knee, but not to the black band, and said, this is the brave Earl Hubert de Burr, who fought at Dover Castle, and destroyed the French fleet, and has done his country much good service. You may kill me, if you like, but I will never make a chain for Earl Hubert de Burr. 
the black band never blushed, or they might have blushed at this. They knocked the smith about from one to another, and swore at him, and tied the earl on horseback, undressed as he was, and carried him off to the Tower of London. The bishops, however, were so indignant at the violation of the sanctuary of the church, that the frightened king soon ordered the black band to take him back again, at the same time commanding the sheriff of Essex to prevent his escaping out of Brentwood Church. Well, the sheriff dug a deep trench all round the church, and erected a high fence, and watched the church night and day. The black band and their captain watched it too, like three hundred and one black wolves. For thirty-nine days Hubert de Burr remained within. At length, upon the fortieth day, cold and hunger were too much for him, and he gave himself up to the black band, who carried him off, for the second time, to the tower. When his trial came on, he refused to plead, but at last it was arranged that he should give up all the royal lands which had been bestowed upon him, and should be kept at the castle of Devizes, in what was called free prison, in charge of four knights appointed by four lords. There he remained almost a year, until, learning that a follower of his old enemy the bishop was made keeper of the castle, and fearing that he might be killed by treachery, he climbed the ramparts one dark night, dropped from the top of the high castle wall into the moat, and coming safely to the ground, took refuge in another church. From this place he was delivered by a party of horse dispatched to his help by some nobles, who were by this time in revolt against the king, and assembled in Wales. He was finally pardoned and restored to his estates, but he lived privately, and never more aspired to a high post in the realm, or to a high place in the king's favour and thus end, more happily than the stories of many favourites of kings, the adventures of Earl Hubert de Burr. The nobles, who had risen in revolt, were stirred up to rebellion by the overbearing conduct of the Bishop of Winchester, who, finding that the king secretly hated the great charter which had been forced from his father, did his utmost to confirm him in that dislike, and in the preference he showed to foreigners over the English. Of this, and of his even publicly declaring that the barons of England were inferior to those of France, the English lords complained with such bitterness, that the king, finding them well supported by the clergy, became frightened for his throne and sent away the bishop and all his foreign associates. On his marriage, however, with Eleanor, a French lady, the daughter of the Count of Provence, he openly favoured the foreigners again, and so many of his wife's relations came over, and made such an immense family party at court, and got so many good things 
and pocketed so much money, and were so high with the English whose money they pocketed, that the bolder English barons murmured openly about a clause there was in the Great Charter, which provided for the banishment of unreasonable favourites. But the foreigners only laughed disdainfully, and said, What are your English laws to us? King Philip of France had died, and had been succeeded by Prince Louis, who had also died after a short reign of three years, and had been succeeded by his son of the same name, so moderate and just a man that he was not the least in the world like a king, as kings went. Isabella, King Henry's mother, wished very much, for a certain spite she had, that England should make war against this king, and, as King Henry was a mere puppet in anybody's hands who knew how to manage his feebleness, she easily carried her point with him. But the Parliament were determined to give him no money for such a war. So, to defy the Parliament, he packed up thirty large casks of silver. I don't know how he got so much. I dare say he screwed it out of the miserable Jews, and put them aboard ship, and went away himself to carry war into France, accompanied by his mother and his brother Richard, Earl of Cornwall, who was rich and clever. But he only got well beaten and came home, the good humour of the Parliament was not restored by this. They reproached the King with wasting the public money to make greedy foreigners rich, and were so stern with him, and so determined not to let him have more of it to waste, if they could help it, that he was at his wit's end for some, and tried so shamelessly to get all he could from his subjects, by excuses or by force, that the people used to say the king was the sturdiest beggar in England. He took the cross, thinking to get some money by that means, but, as it was very well known that he never meant to go on a crusade, he got none. In all this contention the Londoners were particularly keen against the king, and the king hated them warmly in return. Hating or loving, however, made no difference. He continued in the same condition for nine or ten years, when at last the baron said that if he would solemnly confirm their liberties afresh, the parliament would vote him a large sum. As he readily consented, there was a great meeting held in Westminster Hall, one pleasant day in May, when all the clergy, dressed in their robes and holding every one of them a burning candle in his hand, stood up, the barons being also there, while the Archbishop of Canterbury read the sentence of excommunication against any man and all men who should henceforth in any way infringe the great charter of the kingdom. When he had done, they all put out their burning candles with a curse upon the soul of any one, and every one, who should merit that sentence.
the king concluded with an oath to keep the charter, as I am a man, as I am a Christian, as I am a knight, as I am a king. It was easy to make oaths, and easy to break them, and the king did both, as his father had done before him. He took to his old courses again when he was supplied with money, and soon cured of their weakness the few who had ever really trusted him. When his money was gone, and he was once more borrowing and begging everywhere with a meanness worthy of his nature, he got into a difficulty with the Pope respecting the crown of Sicily, which the Pope said he had a right to give away, and which he offered to King Henry for his second son, Prince Edmund. But if you or I give away what we have not got, and what belongs to somebody else, it is likely that the person to whom we give it will have some trouble in taking it. It was exactly so in this case. It was necessary to conquer the Sicilian crown before it could be put upon young Edmund's head. It could not be conquered without money. The Pope ordered the clergy to raise money. The clergy, however, were not so obedient to him as usual. They had been disputing with him for some time about his unjust preference of Italian priests in England, and they had begun to doubt whether the king's chaplain, whom he allowed to be paid for preaching in seven hundred churches, could possibly be, even by the Pope's favour, in seven hundred places at once. The Pope and the King together, said the Bishop of London, may take the mitre off my head, but if they do, they will find that I shall put on a soldier's helmet. I pay nothing. The Bishop of Worcester was as bold as the Bishop of London, and would pay nothing either. Such sums as the more timid or the more helpless of the clergy did raise were squandered away, without doing any good to the king, or bringing the Sicilian crown an inch nearer to Prince Edmund's head. The end of the business was that the Pope gave the crown to the brother of the King of France, who conquered it for himself, and sent the King of England in a bill of one hundred thousand pounds for the expenses of not having won it. The King was now so much distressed that we might almost pity him, if it were possible to pity a king so shabby and ridiculous. His clever brother, Richard, had bought the title of King of the Romans from the German people, and was no longer near him to help him with advice. The clergy, resisting the very Pope, were in alliance with the barons. The barons were headed by Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, married to King Henry's sister, and, though a foreigner himself, the most popular man in England against the foreign favourites. When the king next met his parliament, the barons, led by this earl, came before him, armed from head to foot, and cased in armour. When the parliament again assembled, in a month's time, at Oxford, 
this earl was at their head, and the king was obliged to consent, on oath, to what was called a committee of government, consisting of twenty-four members, twelve chosen by the barons, and twelve chosen by himself. But, at a good time for him, his brother Richard came back. Richard's first act, the barons would not admit him into England on other terms, was to swear to be faithful to the committee of government, which he immediately began to oppose with all his might. Then the barons began to quarrel among themselves, especially the proud Earl of Gloucester with the Earl of Leicester, who went abroad in disgust. Then the people began to be dissatisfied with the barons, because they did not do enough for them. The king's chances seemed so good again at length, that he took heart enough, or caught it from his brother, to tell the committee of government that he abolished them, as to his oath, never mind that, the Pope said, and to seize all the money in the mint, and to shut himself up in the Tower of London. Here he was joined by his eldest son, Prince Edward, and, from the Tower, he made public a letter of the Pope's to the world in general, informing all men that he had been an excellent and just king for five and forty years. As everybody knew he had been nothing of the sort, nobody cared much for this document. It so chanced that the proud Earl of Gloucester dying was succeeded by his son, and that his son, instead of being the enemy of the Earl of Leicester, was, for the time, his friend. It fell out, therefore, that these two earls joined their forces, took several of the royal castles in the country, and advanced as hard as they could on London. The London people, always opposed to the king, declared for them with great joy. The king himself remained shut up, not at all gloriously, in the tower. Prince Edward made the best of his way to Windsor Castle. His mother, the queen, attempted to follow him by water, but the people seeing her barge rowing up the river, and hated her with all their hearts, ran to London Bridge, got together a quantity of stones and mud, and pelted the barge as it came through, crying furiously, Drown the witch! Drown her! They were so near doing it, that the mayor took the old lady under his protection, and shut her up in St. Paul's until the danger was past. It would require a great deal of writing on my part, and a great deal of reading on yours, to follow the king through his disputes with the barons, and to follow the barons through their disputes with one another. So I will make short work of it for both of us, and only relate the chief events that arose out of these quarrels. The good king of France was asked to decide between them. He gave it as his opinion that the king must maintain the great charter, and that the barons must give up the committee of government. 
and all the rest that had been done by the Parliament at Oxford, which the Royalists, or King's Party, scornfully called the Mad Parliament. The barons declared that these were not fair terms, and they would not accept them. Then they caused the great bell of St. Paul's to be tolled, for the purpose of rousing up the London people, who armed themselves at the dismal sound and formed quite an army in the streets. I am sorry to say, however, that instead of falling upon the king's party with whom their quarrel was, they fell upon the miserable Jews, and killed at least five hundred of them. They pretended that some of these Jews were on the king's side, and that they kept hidden in their houses, for the destruction of the people, a certain terrible composition called Greek fire, which could not be put out with water, but only burnt the fiercer for it. What they really did keep in their houses was money, and this their cruel enemies wanted, and this their cruel enemies took, like robbers and murderers. The Earl of Leicester put himself at the head of these Londoners and other forces, and followed the king to Lewes in Sussex, where he lay encamped with his army. Before giving the king's forces battle here, the earl addressed his soldiers, and said that King Henry the Third had broken so many oaths, that he had become the enemy of God, and therefore they would wear white crosses on their breasts, as if they were arrayed, not against a fellow Christian, but against a Turk. White crossed accordingly, they rushed into the fight. They would have lost the day, the king having on his side all the foreigners in England, and from Scotland, John Common, John Balliol, and Robert Bruce, with all their men, but for the impatience of Prince Edward, who, in his hot desire to have vengeance on the people of London, threw the whole of his father's army into confusion. He was taken prisoner, so was the king, so was the king's brother, the king of the Romans, and five thousand Englishmen were left dead upon the bloody grass. For this success the Pope excommunicated the Earl of Leicester, which neither the Earl nor the people cared at all about. The people loved him and supported him, and he became the real king, having all the power of the government in his own hands, though he was outwardly respectful to King Henry the Third, whom he took with him wherever he went, like a poor old limp court card. He summoned a parliament in the year 1265, which was the first parliament in England that the people had any real share in electing and he drew more and more in favour with the people every day, and they stood by him in whatever he did. Many of the other barons, and particularly the Earl of Gloucester, who had become by this time as proud as his father, grew jealous of this powerful and popular earl, who was proud too, and began to conspire against him.
Since the Battle of Lewes, Prince Edward had been kept as a hostage, and, though he was otherwise treated like a prince, had never been allowed to go out without attendance appointed by the Earl of Leicester, who watched him. The conspiring lords found means to propose to him, in secret, that they should assist him to escape, and should make him their leader, to which he very heartily consented. So, on a day that was agreed upon, he said to his attendants after dinner, being then at Hereford, I should like to ride on horseback this fine afternoon a little way into the country, as they, too, thought it would be very pleasant to have a canter in the sunshine, they all rode out of the town together in a gay little troop. When they came to a fine level piece of turf, the prince fell to comparing their horses one with another, and offering bets that one was faster than another, and the attendants, suspecting no harm, rode galloping matches until their horses were quite tired. The prince rode no matches himself, but looked on from his saddle, and staked his money. Thus they passed the whole merry afternoon. Now the sun was setting, and they were all going slowly up a hill. The prince's horse very fresh, and all the other horses very weary, when a strange rider mounted on a grey steed appeared at the top of the hill, and waved his hat. "'What does the fellow mean?' said the attendants, one to another. The prince answered on the instant, by setting spurs to his horse, dashing away at his utmost speed, joining the man, riding into the midst of a little crowd of horsemen, who were then seen waiting under some trees, and who closed around him, and so he departed in a cloud of dust leaving the road empty of all but the baffled attendants, who sat looking at one another, while their horses drooped their ears and panted. The prince joined the Earl of Gloucester at Ludlow, the Earl of Leicester with a part of the army, and the stupid old king was at Hereford. One of the Earl of Leicester's sons, Simon de Montfort, with another part of the army, was in Sussex. To prevent these two parts from uniting was the prince's first object. He attacked Simon de Montfort by night, defeated him, seized his banners and treasure, and forced him into Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire, which belonged to his family. His father, the Earl of Leicester, in the meanwhile, not knowing what had happened, marched out of Hereford, with his part of the army and the king, to meet him. He came on a bright morning in August to Evesham, which is watered by the pleasant river Avon. Looking rather anxiously across the prospect toward Kenilworth, he saw his own banners advancing, and his face brightened with joy. But, it clouded darkly when he presently perceived that the banners were captured and in the enemy's hands, and he said, It is over. The Lord have mercy on our souls, 
for our bodies our Prince Edwards. He fought like a true knight, nevertheless. When his horse was killed under him, he fought on foot. It was a fierce battle, and the dead lay in heaps everywhere. The old king stuck up in a suit of armour on a big war horse, which didn't mind him at all, with which carried him into all sorts of places where he didn't want to go, got into everybody's way, and very nearly got knocked on the head by one of his son's men. But he managed to pipe out, I am Harry of Winchester, and the prince, who heard him, seized his bridle, and took him out of peril. The Earl of Leicester still fought bravely, until his best son Henry was killed, and the bodies of his best friends choked his path, and then he fell, still fighting, sword in hand. They mangled his body, and sent it as a present to a noble lady, but a very unpleasant lady, I should think, who was the wife of his worst enemy. They could not mangle his memory in the minds of the faithful people, though. Many years afterwards they loved him more than ever, and regarded him as a saint, and always spoke of him as Sir Simon the Righteous. And even though he was dead, the cause for which he had fought still lived, and was strong, and forced itself upon the king in the very hour of victory. Henry found himself obliged to respect the great charter, however much he hated it, and to make laws similar to the laws of the great Earl of Leicester, and to be moderate and forgiving towards the people at last, even towards the people of London, who had so long opposed him. There were more risings before all this was done, but they were set at rest by these means, and Prince Edward did his best in all things to restore peace. One Sir Adam de Gordon was the last dissatisfied knight in arms, but the prince vanquished him in a single combat, in a wood, and nobly gave him his life, and became his friend, instead of slaying him. Sir Adam was not ungrateful. He ever afterwards remained devoted to his generous conqueror. When the troubles of the kingdom were thus calmed, Prince Edward and his cousin Henry took the cross, and went away to the Holy Land, with many English lords and knights. Four years afterwards the king of the Romans died, and next year, 1272, his brother, the weak king of England, died. He was sixty-eight years old then, and had reigned fifty-six years. He was as much of a king in death as he had ever been in life. He was a mere pale shadow of a king at all times. End of chapter 15